Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is January 26th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, and welcome to the Politico Nerdcast. We have a packed agenda for you on today's episode. New policy is flying out of the new White House. The Senate is practically drowning in Trump administration appointees right now. And Democrats are desperately trying to make sense of it all. We would love to have you subscribe, rate us, or even write a written review of the Nerdcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please send us your questions. We have one this week. So if you'd like your question answered on the Nerdcast in the future, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. All right, here are the numbers that mattered this week. And the numbers that will be driving the news for probably the next month, too. We'll start with three. That is the number of finalists on President Donald Trump's shortlist for the vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll dig into who they are and preview what's to come in that confirmation fight. Next number, three to five million. That's the number of illegal votes that Trump said he believes were cast in 2016. More important, he cares enough to be talking about it and some other distractions a lot in the first week of his presidency. And our final data point this week, the number 11. And if you've seen the movie Spinal Tap, you'll understand why we're using this number as a stand-in to talk about what the Democratic Party is going through in exile right now. This is going to be a really great episode. We have a ton to talk about. And here to do it, we have reporter Nancy Cook. Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. National political reporter Eliana Johnson. Hey, Scott. Chief investigative reporter Ken Vogel. Excited to be here. And senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. I'm even more excited to be here. Uh, the, Lie! The, the Philly gang <laughs> back with a vengeance this week. All right, let's jump right into segment one. Our first data point of this week is three, and that comes from a, uh, a that's the answer to a question from uh, Amy Rosenthal, one of our listeners, who, who asked, who do you think Trump will nominate to the Supreme Court, and when is it coming? So we, we've learned this week that three is the number of finalists on President Donald Trump's shortlist for that Supreme Court vacancy. It's going to be the big story of the next month. Eliana, tell us a little bit about who these three are, how we got to this point, and uh, you know what could happen next week when we, uh, when we find out who the pick is. We learned this week that Trump has narrowed his search with the help of uh, Federalists, the Federalist Society and um, its executive vice president, Leonard Leo. And Ileana is, is being humble here. Actually, when she says we learned, she means she learned and <laughs> scooped this at a story that she will tell us what it says. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> Ken, Ken's my PR man uh, <laughs> sitting here. So, uh, yeah. Two, three prominent conservative judges who uh, all sit on circuit courts right now. Um, Bill Pryor, who we had heard a lot about and who Trump named early in the process, uh, who served as Jeff Sessions' deputy when he uh, was back in Alabama. Um, Neil Gorsuch, another circuit judge who uh, seems to be a real favorite of uh, conservative conservatives in the legal world. And uh, Thomas Hardiman, who serves on the Third Circuit um, with Trump's sister, Marianne Trump-Berry. And Politico's Shane Goldmacher reported this morning that Trump's sister has been advocating for his nomination um, because they are colleagues on the Third Circuit. That's something I've also heard. Um, the two are friends. And Trump obviously weighs the input of his family very heavily. Um, Gorsuch, though, um, I've, I had people tell me and wrote in our piece that the quality of his writing and the clarity of thinking demonstrated in his opinions um, really served to elevate him in this process. Um, one conservative uh, sent me an opinion that he wrote um, coming out against a federal sex offender registry, which is not a popular opinion, but this person uh, thought it really illustrated how he hewed to the principles um, against 
popular opinion, uh, constitutional principles, even when it wasn't popular. Um, and so I think that sort of illustrates, um, you know, this person said to me, these are the sorts of things that help shape the court. And in, in searching for a replacement for Scalia, that's really what conservatives want. Um, I think this is actually going to be the most mainstream, normal thing Trump Trump does. And tremendously important because a lot of people voted for Trump um, or they said only because they cared so much about who the president would appoint to fill the uh, vacancy created by Scalia's death a year ago. That's such a good point. Nancy, tell us a little bit more. You know, what are kind of the pros and cons floating around about uh, each of these nominees? Well, I just want to go back quickly to one thing Eliana said um, just about conservatives who voted for Trump because of the SCOTUS pick. I mean, I feel like Right now, we're seeing this schism with Trump and the congressional Republicans where they're not necessarily agreeing on all policy and Trump is sort of going his own way on certain things. But I do think on the SCOTUS pick, this is going to be the one area where Trump will totally stick to Republican orthodoxy and stick to that list that he came out with in the campaign. And there's a lot of people that really, um, you know, only got behind him, as Eliana said, because of that, including anti-abortion activists, you know, a lot of heritage found people. Heritage Foundation people, a lot of conservative judicial activists and real conservative groups. And that was a real key element of political support, which was also aided by the addition of uh, Vice President Mike Pence to the ticket that really helped build support for Trump because of that list. Ken? And and one thing that some of these folks who are sort of cultural conservatives who for whom the Supreme Court was such an important thing, such an important driver of their support for Trump, have expressed some concerns about, as Ileana revealed in, in the story that we were talking about, where she uh, revealed that the sort of top three is this guy Pryor in a decision that he ruled with the majority on in 2011 to protect transgender people from workplace discrimination, essentially, if I understand it, adding them to the class of protected people who could not be discriminated against uh, in employment decisions. Apparently, that's that's just uh, lit some of these conservative legal listservs on fire with people expressing concern about that. It would sort of be, I mean, you know, I think from a liberal perspective, it would be of a piece with uh, what you were suggesting about the uh, other nominees, uh, you know, doing something that was politically unpopular. But I think that's something that at least conservatives, uh, you know, if it's if it's sort of a civil liberties issue where they could uh, sell it. To right. Right. Where they, where they could sell it and say, like, oh, this is, you know, the, the sex offender thing is like excessive. You know, registry is like excessive government regulation, even if it's like seen as being tough on crime. This other decision protected ch- transgender people from workplace discrimination, you would think same thing, but maybe a little bit harder to sell. Well, I think the interesting thing um, about that is that there's um, a ferocious debate taking place among uh, conservatives in the Federalist Society world. Uh, A lot of people are defending him, saying that he joined with the majority opinion. The Supreme Court had a similar ruling, so he was um, backing uh, what was seen as Supreme Court precedent. Um, And a lot of people saying the decision was wrong. And uh, the conservatives I've spoken to have said um, it's very difficult to separate some of the criticism of him for that 2011 decision and a lot of evangelical furor over another decision that I think um, could be characterized in in a similar way to Gorsuch's uh, hewing to principle um, over popular opinion. Pryor um, played a role when he was attorney general uh, of Alabama in removing a very popular Supreme Court justice who had placed, um, I think, like Roy a twenty-five, Moore, right? yeah, in the name Roy Moore, uh, placed a twenty-five hundred thousand a 2,500-pound statue of the Ten Commandments in the state courthouse and was ordered to remove it and defied a court order um, prior, um, asked a court to remove him and became the target of a lot of evangelical fury over that. So the conservatives I've spoken to said it's very hard to disaggregate sort of the, the evangelical anger at him over that and their opposition to him um, on the grounds of this transgender ruling where he sided with the majority. Yeah, I think this reveals a little bit some of the like conservative intellectual gymnastics that occur uh, on this issue of like judicial activism where like judicial activism is basically anything that, that a judge does that they disagree with that that flies against either precedent or uh, or you know case law or or uh, 
um, you know, in, in the liberal argument, the Constitution, and when they do something that is, you know, flies in the face of, of precedent that conservatives agree with, they applaud it. So this is sort of one of those uh, one of those times when that is brought into stark relief. I think it's important to keep in mind, there's a conservative debate about this. He has a lot of defenders, including um, soon-to-be Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, prior served as his deputy, Sessions a a major booster of his nomination. So it does seem both Hardiman and Sessions have, or Hardiman and Pryor, excuse me, have uh, people who are promoting their nominations. And Gorsuch, too, I think he would probably be the most popular um, nominee among legal and intellectual conservatives. Um, So it will be interesting to see what happens. I think the other aspect um, that is really interesting about the Supreme Court nomination is that Trump often tells, you know, I think tells small lies that surprise people. Um, He's litigating crowd size of his inauguration um, and arguing about uh, what happened with the popular vote. But this is something that conservatives trusted him to keep his word about. And that it does appear he is set to keep his word on. Um, so I think a lot of people say, oh, you can't take his word on anything. He's completely unpredictable. But this is something he's been uh, pretty predictable about and that he is coming through for in a really important way uh, for you know mainstream conservatives and Republicans. That's a really interesting point. So let, let's kind of look at this now from the other angle. Like next Thursday, uh, a week from today, we're going to find out who this nominee is. And then it's going to be all about what's happening in, in the Senate, you know, which, Nancy, as you've been following, is like waist deep in in Trump cabinet appointees and sorting through those nominations. How How is this going to be similar and how is this going to be different when the Supreme Court nomination goes up? Well, I feel like the um, Senate Democrats haven't been successful, obviously, in blocking any of the cabinet nominees. And no one really thought they would be. They just thought that they would make a lot of noise in it. But underlying that, I think that... Um, the Senate uh, Senate Minority Leader, excuse me, Chuck Schumer, has always looked ahead to the Supreme Court fight as something that's going to be much more key than these actual cabinet picks. This is something that, particularly if Trump picks someone younger, could be on the court for years and will just influence tons more policy than a cabinet pick would. And so I think that the Senate Democrats, whereas they've been more divided and sort of less able to pick a target to try to bring down a cabinet pick, I think that Chuck Schumer is really going to try to toe the line and make sure that they are uh, much more aligned and much more unified on their message with the SCOTUS pick. And and let's be clear about this. I mean, the rules are different, right? The, of course. The, the filibuster is in place uh, as an option for Democrats for the Supreme Court, as it has not been in the cabinet. But uh, Eliana, you were talking earlier about how, you know, the all of these judges have come up for votes in the Senate before, and uh, some of them have passed with pretty, you know, beyond filibuster flying colors. That's exactly right. All three of these uh, judges, when they were nominated um, for their circuit court positions by George W. Bush um, came up before the Senate. And the only one um, who was controversial was Bill Pryor, um, who I believe it was a 53-47 vote. It could could have been uh, 52-48. I'm not positive. Um, But the other two um, were unanimous, uh, came through unanimously. So I think it will be more difficult for Democrats to mount – serious opposition to them or make the case that it's different now, though they certainly have done it before. Um, And one of the arguments, I think, in favor of the other two that I've heard people make is that it will be very difficult for Democrats to lay a finger on them. They they haven't authored uh, controversial decisions um, or given speeches where they've made controversial arguments uh, and and so on. So I do think those unanimous votes will be uh, used as uh, certainly you'll you'll hear Republicans increasingly talk about them um, in the run up to their confirmation hearings. Mm -hmm. And now the the fulcrum between, you know, that slim Republican majority and the 60 to clear a filibuster uh, lies right. You know, it's that swing block of Democratic senators that I think we're probably going to talk about every week on the Nerdcast from now until eternity. It's 10 Democrats from states that Trump won who are up for re-election in 2018. And Ken, there's going to be a big money machine that's going to fire up as soon as this nomination comes down to try and uh, put pressure on them. Yeah, that's right. And, And the reason for it is some of the sort of inverse of what we were talking about before, which is you know, we're saying that this is uh, that uh, there are conservatives who, you know, may have been sort of lukewarm on Trump who voted for him because of the Supreme Court. 
There were liberals who may have been lukewarm on Hillary, who voted for her because of the Supreme Court, and there are a ton of donors for whom, major donors, for whom the Supreme Court is sort of the be-all and the end-all. So we will see a lot of spending by Republicans and conservatives to push whoever the pick is, and we will see a lot of spending by liberals and Democrats to oppose whoever the pick is. And I think this will shape up as one of the early 2018 fights, as you alluded to, that there there are going to be uh, there are going to be conservatives who are going to be targeting these red state uh, senators who are up for re-election, and they're going to be looking for places where they can kind of ding them, not as being uh, insufficiently supportive of Trump, but as being like you know big liberals who uh, who don't represent the, the characteristics and the constituencies in their state. The other thing that I would say, just on the specifics of it, you know. Per Eliana's point, that like these, it's going to be tough for uh, uh, Democrats to oppose people, Senate Democrats to oppose people who uh, went through in their you know lower court uh, nominations without nary a fight. Um, they will oppose them. They'll, they'll set all that aside. But it's sort of ironic that the one guy who you would think that Democrats might be more supportive of prior. Uh, you know, because of these decisions that we talked about in the 2011 transgender case and because of the actions with Roy Moore, the uh, state Supreme Court justice, um, you know, that, that, that he will, uh, you know, he will still get the same sort of vociferous opposition. But uh, by the same token, I think the Democrats who had such a huge issue with having just eight Supreme Court justices for the past year will have, uh, you know, a much easier time stomaching that uh, over the next couple of months. Yeah, the trial and all this, all the arguments that were made about, uh, you know, about about the necessity of having nine people on the court, about, uh, you know, the, the, the judges in their sort of previous nominations, those go out the window. Supreme Court fights are like, you know, the, the, become like one of the biggest spectacles in all of politics. And I think even bigger... You know, to your point, Scott, since Citizens United really unleashed some of this big money, you know, it was still legal for, um, you know, uh, outside groups to spend unlimited funds on, um, you know, on non-electoral and issue advocacy, which the, the court, you know, arguably is. But um, it's really emboldened some of these big donors to come forth in a major way. And these big donors, like I said, really care about the Supreme Court. There's a lot more infrastructure set up around this. I think the number to keep track of is $10 million. That's our Politico's Burgess Everett reported a few weeks ago that the deep pocketed judicial crisis network, which is part of the, you know, the Koch network of outside groups is going to plow at least that much money into advertisements uh, targeting de- Democratic senators up for reelection in, in some of these uh, in, in some of these red states, uh, you know, like Montana, North Dakota, uh, Indiana. These are places that went very hard for for Trump in in 2016. And and I expect that to be a big subject of conversation this weekend when the Koch when the Kochs convene their donor network for one of their twice a year uh, seminars in uh, Palm Springs, California. Uh, they have had actual Supreme Court justices attend the events around these in the past. And this is something that their donors care a lot about. Nancy, last word. What do you think we ought to we ought to be keeping in mind and, and looking for as as this process develops next week? Well, I just think it'll be interesting to see, you know, who they end up picking and and then just also who that person is close to, because I think, you know, whether or not the pick goes to someone that's close to Sessions or, you know, close to Don McGahn, the White House counsel, it will say something not just about the direction, obviously, of the Trump presidency, but who in the White House and who among his cadre of advisors really has his ear, because this is, uh, you know, one of the most consequential decisions that he's going to make of his whole presidency. All right. Well, that point about the power dynamics within the Trump administration. Administration actually is a great uh, point to segue into our second number, our second data point of this podcast, and that's three to five million. And that's the number of illegal ballots that President Trump believes were cast by ineligible voters in 2016, as he's been saying for the past few days, including in his first uh, broadcast news interview since he took office. And so, Charlie, I mean, this is this is potentially the, the biggest of uh, a, an enormous number of distractions that, that were kind of served up in the first week of presidency when usually we're seeing, you know, a new administration on message, they're pushing their new policy, and, and yet, here we are. Yeah, it's just a, a bonkers, crazy claim. Like, three to five million votes did 
is ridiculous. It's ludicrous. And let's just say that right now. There is no evidence of that whatsoever. And, and the one thing that I would say is I'm not somebody who easily dismisses the claims of voter fraud. Because, you know, one of the things I've learned as, you know, covering politics for 20 years is like there's a dirty secret when it comes to the, the big parties that people, voters are never told. And, and the, dirty, the little, dirty little secret is this. Democrats are willing to tolerate a little voter fraud because if it happens, it tends to work to their advantage. Now, at the same time, Republicans are willing to tolerate a little voter disenfranchisement because if it happens, it tends to work to their advantage. And so I, I don't automatically dismiss claims of voter fraud. And I think Democrats are far too quick uh, to dismiss them, especially when you look at the history of American elections, whether it's LBJ in Texas in the Senate, whether it's Kennedy in uh, Chicago and Mayor Daley. I mean, even in the modern day, you see examples of it. So let's not deny that it happens, but it does not it's happen the on the spread. It's it, And it's the idea that three to five million fraudulent votes were out there. For that many to have been cast, there would have had to have been a concerted national effort in place. People would have gone to jail. It would have been a massive scandal, one of the biggest political scandals in, in American history, bigger than Watergate, bigger than so many other things. Um, that's a ton of votes. Five million votes would have put Romney over Obama. It would have put John Kerry over Bush. And clearly, it would have changed the 2000 election as well. And, so here, and here's the last point of why it's so ridiculous. If, if there was such an effort, if Democrats were trying to do it, or if there were some nefarious forces trying to get these folks to vote against Trump, you'd never do it in a state like California because you don't need to. <laughs> you know, you would be well aware of the implications of the way the Electoral College works. So you would have done it in all the swing states that Donald Trump carried. So uh, it's just a ridiculous thing to fixate on. Yeah, and, and now Trump is, I mean, to speak of distractions, he's calling for a major investigation of uh of vote fraud and so you know having been through uh the i cover it as a reporter in olympia washington the 2004 washington gubernatorial election where uh the, after the first count the republican candidate dino rossi led by 261 votes that triggered a mandatory recount Rossi finished ahead by 42 votes. And then the Democrats paid for another statewide recount that put uh, Christine Gregoire, the Democrat, up by like 130 votes. That the, the, uh, the Republicans sued. And we had a major investigation of all these claims of illegal voting and whatnot. And they put forth specific like ballots that they wanted to. Uh, you know, that they wanted to uh, it rule invalid. And that ended up with a, a court uh, covering a long trial in, in uh, eastern Washington, uh, with a lot of driving back and forth over the Cascade Mountains, uh, with, <laughs> with the uh, judge ruling that, in fact, Gregoire won and actually ruling invalid a couple votes to Rossi. So that the whole this was like a giant investigation, lawsuit, legal case that ended up with the changing, finding like two votes that were actually illegal. So tell me more about the court case in Washington, Ken. <laughs> right. No, it's like, but it's just a good example. First of all, it's a good example. It's, it's a good example of several things. First of all, that like, you know, when you're counting this many votes, you could count it 100 different times and get 100 different results. And second of all, when you're actually looking for illegal votes, it's like extremely difficult to prove them. Well, let's let's zoom out a little bit from the, I mean, th this, you know, th this is happening right now. And the president was talking about it yesterday. But this is one of kind of a number of just random distractions that's popped up over the, the first week of this presidency. He tweeted about sending the feds to Chicago. He attacked CNN on Twitter. He was needling the protesters who were in Washington uh, right after his inauguration. Uh, there was the whole thing about the, the crowd size, uh, the, the uh, you know, the potentially uh, bringing in an, an, an applause line to the CIA for his speech there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, Eliana, has this obscured or kind of distracted from some of the big stuff that's actually happened in this first week? I mean, there have been 12 executive orders and presidential memoranda. Congress is starting to get to work. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, I think I have a somewhat contrarian view of all of this, which is that there's so much focus on that Trump said X or Trump said Y, you know, he's litigating the crowd size. Why is he doing it? Now he's litigating uh, the popular vote. Why is he doing it? And I, I think that uh, distracts somewhat from 
the fact that there there is a real ideology and point of view that undergirds everything that's happening in the Trump White House, um, I think you saw that come through in his inaugural address, and I think you're seeing it come through in these executive orders. And the craziness that's out front all the time distracts from how uh, big a political shift is happening um, in this White House. Um, yeah, tell us more about that, because this would be the first Republican White House, and who knows how long that would not be so much a conservative White House as a... This is not a, I, this is not a Republican White House. I think what we're seeing here is it's really like something of a coalition government where we have an, a nationalist, populist White House that's going to um, partner with a Republican majority in Congress on some things and partner with Democrats on some other things. Um, you know, the immigration, they'll uh, they'll agree with Republicans in Congress on immigration. They'll butt heads on some of this infrastructure stuff. Uh, when Paul Ryan says he wants to privatize Medicaid, no way is Donald Trump and, uh, you know, the people in some of the Brexit the Trump Brexit states, no way uh, are they going to see that happen. And I think Trump aligns much more with Democrats on some things and more with Republicans on other things. But I think it's a mistake to view him through uh, a traditional political lens where, like, we debate between, uh, you know, if you think of it as a football field where the debate happens between the 45-yard lines, I think Trump um, – Trump isn't in the stadium. Trump, He's Trump is – well, somewhere else. I think <laughs> – it's more accurate to think of Trump as looking at things, you know, along a horizontal axis where he says, I'm for you people, all of whom are at the bottom of the heap and who are getting screwed by the people at the top of the heap. Charlie? I think Eliana makes a really smart point here, which is uh, not to lose sight of this emerging ideology. Uh, this is something we haven't seen before. And if he were able to execute it, it would mark a profound change in our politics. Now, having said that, you know, the, the problem, though, is while you can see the signs of this happening, these distractions are so enormous that it's hard for me to even envision him executing uh, the fine detail that would be necessary to change the model. So for voters who voted for Trump, they are in a way getting that pr that deep change and break with uh, a broken system that they wanted. But at the same time, his focus and his obsession with these ridiculous little litigating these little points mean that he will never be able to execute that vision. And it's also serving to uh, underscore the worst fears of the opposition and even some people, some of his allies. Like there was a great quote in Gabe DiBenedetti's story today, which is excellent. If you haven't read it, you should read it about the Dem scorched earth strategy where uh, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington State says, uh, essentially, they were entitled to a, great, a grace period and they blew it. It's been worse than I could have imagined, even in the first few days. And the, the of course, he's a Another partisan. Washington State shout out. I exactly. <laughs> Let me go into some details of... Uh, more court cases there. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it is the nerd cast. Come on. I'm kidding. But no, but the larger point here is that if you're going to focus on these, on, on litigating these points, you're going to lose any momentum and you're not going to be taken seriously. And I think that's what he's in danger of uh, running into right now. I mean, it's not just, it's not just that he's distracting and sort of shooting himself in the foot. It's that the type of agenda that Ileana and that you got and that you Charlie are talking about is like so it's so difficult to bridge these gaps to like side with Democrats on trade against the Republican orthodoxy and then side with the Republican hardliners on immigration against some in the Republican sort of leadership as well as against Democrats like to thread that needle is just so difficult and we haven't seen it we haven't seen it in recent years what were we seen administration sort of get you know affect the most change or have the most success is when everyone is reading off the same is when you have united government you know all one side or all the other and everyone is reading off the same uh playbook so bush during the early years of bush just jamming stuff through with like you know methodical efficiency uh with the republican congress until we lost it in 2006 and then on the flip side look at obama in, in Obama's first two years before he lost the Democrat, before he lost full Democratic control, he very much tried to work across party lines and tried to work with his, uh, you know, with the various uh, sort of uh, factions within the Democratic base. And, and 
it kind of hindered himself a little bit. You know, on Obamacare, Obamacare took a long time to get through because Obama wanted to work with everyone and bring everyone in. And of course, Ted Kennedy died and they lost a veto proof uh, majority no, in the filibuster se- filibuster-proof uh, majority in the, in the Senate, uh, and then they lost the, the house the House in 2010, and he sort of lost the ability to do that. So you know, Trump is starting from a place where he is neither sort of working closely across you know across party lines or within his own party, nor is he just jamming stuff through uh, that that sort of fits the Republican orthodoxy. And on top of it, as we just discussed, he is uh, adding all these distractions to the mix. It makes it very difficult to see. Uh, the the sort of pathway for him to rack up a lot of big victories early in his term. Well, and yet, I mean, he still does. He has those big majorities, especially in the House. The Senate's obviously a smaller majority, but the, it's potentially, you know, Mitch McConnell is very good at, at ringing as many votes as he can out of that. Eliana, I mean, to the point that, that Ken just raised, how, if at all, is the, the circus that, that seems to surround Trump where, wherever he goes, uh, including on the Internet, affecting relations with congressional Republicans, if at all? I think... Um, it is affecting relations with congressional Republicans. There's, I think there's a view among uh, congressmen and Republican leaders that since Trump is something of a blank slate on policy, um, that it creates a lot of opportunity for them. I think what they're going to find is that um, there's, there's a view that they're in control. But the reality is I, I really don't think that they can control Donald Trump. And because there, there really is an ideology coming out of the Trump White House – Things may be uh, more difficult than they appear. Yes, I think they will have a lot of control on the areas where they align, um, like repealing Obamacare. Uh, certainly, I think Trump um, and his folks will leave the detail to Republicans in Congress. Will leave the details to Republicans in Congress. But I don't think Republicans in Congress are going to necessarily have their way uh, in areas where uh, they butt heads with. Um, you know, up the populist ideology. I think the most important shift, and this is where I don't know, and I think it will be interesting to see how um, the Republican Congress reacts, is that Trump, Trump's inaugural was incredibly inward-looking, and I don't think that he has uh, much of a sense of America's role on the world stage. And uh, to the extent he does, I think he thinks that the post-World War II international order um, that began really with um, the end of World War II, the Marshall Plan, and so on, has not served America well, and that it's uh, it, it's been bad for American citizens, and he wants to retrench from the world stage. Um, that is not the view of either Republicans or Democrats in Congress, and I think he may be the first American president since World War II to see things that way. I'm very interested to see how Republicans in Congress will respond to that. And we've already seen some signs that there will be opposition. The fact that you had three prominent Republican senators who were talking about voting against the Secretary of State pick, who, by the way, was expressing sentiments on their issues that were a lot closer to the Republican orthodoxy than those of Donald Trump. Uh, I'm talking about Tillerson, and I'm talking about uh, Rubio, McCain, and Graham. I mean, they ultimately voted for him, but... It's not hard to foresee other places where it would be like a direct contrast where Trump would be putting something forward or taking a, a position on foreign policy that is more anathema to them where they would, uh, you know, stand maybe not so much Rubio, but certainly McCain and Graham would sort of stand firm and refuse to go along with, with Trump's sort of new way of, of, in this case, foreign policy. But you could extend this, I think, to like any number of issues that Republicans care deeply about where Trump is not aligned with them. Charlie, you're scribbling furiously as Eliana and Ken were talking. What you got? Yeah, well, it Scott, it's mostly that the, the more I, I heard from Eliana and, and Ken, the more I began to think about you know, just the transformative effect that Trump could have on American politics. You know, if he was able to show some discipline and execute this Jacksonian uh, vision that he has, because, I mean, what we're, what, here, here's what could happen. And you can see some vestiges of this already. He could pry parts of organized labor loose from the Democratic coalition. Think about what that would do to the Democratic Party. He would completely rattle the electoral map across the the Rust Belt change, all the assumptions we have about electoral college locks. Uh, And there are so many other implications if he would just show a little more discipline. And uh, that is what's so, I think, alarming about the first week, that on the one hand, you see moves toward creating an entirely new vision of governance. And keep in mind, 
it is resonating with some Americans. You may, one of the things uh, that I remember from in the inauguration is how many pundits and TV commentators and all the network folks and, and journalists talking about how dark this vision, this uh, dystopian vision that Trump laid out and how terrible it is. Meanwhile, in the poll that we ran this week with Morning Consult, 49% of Americans, or of voters that we surveyed, said, said that speech was excellent or good. And he got high marks for the America First uh, angle. People liked that. People responded to it. So the point is that if he's serious about implementing this vision, there is a lane for him. We're beginning to see that. But as long as he's focused on um, the, you know, all this foolishness, he's going nowhere. I mean, we just keep on. I feel like it's just, it, 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 it's... We've got to dis- disabuse ourselves of this notion that, like, if he could just be <laughs> so a normal true. politician, if he could just have a little discipline, if he could just step away from Twitter, if he could just stop obsessing over cable news, like, he's not going to do it. He didn't do it during the campaign when it would have been in his best interest to do it. He didn't do it during the transition when it was in his interest to do it. And we've seen in this first week he has not done it in the White House. Here's a question, though, for for you guys. Could anyone? Okay, so let's just assume he, he's not physic, he's not emotionally, mentally, constitutionally capable of executing this vision. It will be out there, and someone will try to emulate it. Is there anyone else in American politics who might be able to pull it off? I mean, I can't even think of folks. You know, he's so unique, and he's such an example of lightning in a bottle. Uh, yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, it's. It's like some of the same things that I just cited as really, and we've just discussed as really hindering him were also what made him so popular. So you get a more disciplined politician who has some of the same populist ideas, but doesn't have that charisma and that sort of sense of authenticity. They're just not going to appeal to the electorate in the same way. All right. At this point, let's switch gears from Trump to uh, the party that he's put in exile. And our third data point. He's uh, disemboweled <laughs> viciously. Eviscerated. Uh, our third data point uh, and, and final one this week is 11. And that is the setting on the amp right now, Spinal Tap style, for the Democratic Party, which spent the first week of the Donald Trump administration basically in an extended primal scream. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the the marches on Saturday, which saw a huge turnout, not just in Washington, D.C., but in a bunch of cities around the country. We're seeing Elizabeth Warren, of all people, getting attacked uh, by uh, liberal activists for saying that she's going to vote for Ben Carson uh, to be the secretary for housing and urban development. We've got uh, the Daily Coasts calling for uh, a, a an uprising in, in primaries. I mean, what, <laughs> Charlie, what's happening? Well, um, at, at the risk of sounding a little bit like a management toady, uh, I would point people to Gabe DiBenedetti's story <laughs> today, which is you know, the idea that Democrats uh, are embarking on a scorched earth strategy against Donald Trump. It's a great story. Uh, and the reason I'm so high on it is because I got to talk to Gabe a lot during the, the reporting process and the editing process. And in hearing all the things that uh, he heard in seeing those quotes and talking to him about what he wasn't able to get into the story. And it really goes to show that the, the Democratic Party is becoming very radicalized, not the entire party, but much of it, even beyond where it might have been during the George Bush era and things like that. And uh, they have, after much thought in you know private conferences, in conference calls publicly and privately, they've come Many of them have come to the uh, the uh, point where they believe that there is no way uh, to to handle Trump or to deal with Trump. And so in in that space, into that void, they believe they have to go with a scorched earth, not now, not ever approach of not even thinking about working with him. And and the one thing, the, the best example that came last week in the Democratic National Committee Candidates Forum, where one of the questions was, how will you work with the new president and will you look for opportunities? And one of the candidates, a veteran politician, New Hampshire State Party Chairman Ray Buckley, said, laughed at it and said, that is an absolutely ridiculous question. And so the field of candidates universally agreed that it's absolutely ludicrous to even consider the idea of working with Trump. The only point I have to make on this data point is that watching these marches all over the country, oversubscribed, some of them had to be canceled because way too many people were showing up, was isn't this what Hillary Clinton was trying to do the, her entire campaign? Like get an outpouring of enthusiasm based around some sort of women's issue, um, enthusiasm around, you know, 
girl power and like it happened spontaneously if you just take Hillary Clinton out of the equation. Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, mean, I think, I think uh, it's a lot e- – one of the lessons there is, like, it's just so much easier to rally and mobilize at the grassroots level and at every level, really, of politics up to the major donors – in the opposition, it's so much easier to rally against something than it is to rally for something. And, you know, there's a lot of energy out there and Democrats are having this debate about how to harness it. It happens as Democrats are debating sort of the future of their party and what their vision is going to be for their party going forward. And, uh, you know, I think the energy is on the populist side and the daily cost thing about, uh, you know, calling for a revolt does sort of feed into this idea that like Democrats are at this moment right now where they have this energy and if they're not careful this energy will like blow up the party like the tea party did with republicans in 2009 well it, you know it's really interesting you mentioned bottling it specifically as kind of a metaphor i've been thinking about a lot with and you know we saw emily's list and other democratic groups holding candidate trainings and gathering as many emails as they possibly could while all these women were in dc for this march uh in uh, last weekend and maybe hoping that they can kind of keep some of this energy, uh, which is very unusual for this point, so soon after an election, and and unleash it again at a later date. CNN reported this week that the DCCC, the House Democratic Campaign Committee, has grown its donor list by a half million people already in 2017, which is a bonkers big number. Um, but, you know, as, as you said, there's only so much of this you can contain, right? And if there's, if there's a, uh, if, if there's a seeming uh, separation and priorities of the grassroots and the, the Democrats in elected office. Again, as we mention all the time, many of whom and the Senate are going to be running in very conservative states for re-election in 2018. You can see the beginnings of a big problem here within the party. Right, Charlie? Yeah, I mean, I think the real danger here of, of this kind of approach is, number one, the blowback on the Senate candidates. Uh, ten of them are running in states that Trump carried, and that's important to remember. Uh, ten are running in, in those circumstances. And if they overplay their hand and if Americans are kind of OK with with Trump and his numbers either stay where they're at now or maybe even uh, rise a little bit, all of a sudden you have to worry about blowback to candidates up and down the ballot on 2018. And just as important, think about how this approach could shape the 2020 presidential candidate or presidential race, because all of a sudden a seething par- party base is going to incentivize all the ambitious presidential candidates to outdo mm-hmm. each other in their level of vitriol towards Donald Trump. And so all of that ripples out of this decision now to go, uh, you know, with a not now, not ever approach toward Donald Trump. And what you're talking about, Charlie, in 2020, the the temptation of Democratic candidates to be as liberal as they can, is sort of the, the backlash against Trump, in many ways, is the challenge for the the opposite challenge for the for the Democrats running for re-election, as you talked about in 2018. You know, you're talking about well, they might face blowback in the general election if they're too liberal. If they're not liberal enough, they may face a ch- primary challenge, like a real primary challenge. That's the Tea Party conundrum, and that's sort of what we're getting Daily Coast and the the suggestion that like Democrats are need to be, uh, you know, that there's almost like a litmus test for 100% complete opposition to, to Trump and and uh, and adhering to you know really liberal uh, values and causes that uh, you know if they're insufficiently uh, if if they're not seen as doing that that they could face primary challenges from from an energized base in in uh, 2018 before they even get to a general. I agree with all that, but I would just clarify my point only refers to their posture towards Trump. I'm not even talking about ideology. I'm just saying, you know, their political uh, futures will be contingent in some ways or could be based on their posture toward Donald Trump. Well, so here, here's something I'm wondering. The, the, Ken, you brought up the Tea Party, uh, which, it, you know, is kind of a, a historical precedent for this kind of a party out of power relying on the energy of a, a, a burgeoning mass movement to, to, you know, re-energize itself, remake itself, get back into power. But, you know, it's not th- this is not the only uh, like ma- mass protest uh, that we've seen. And I'm wondering, I mean, there's also a potential parallel here to Wisconsin in 2011, right, Eliana? I mean, we saw huge Democratic protests against Governor Scott Walker uh, there. And, you know, I don't want to spoil the ending for you, but Scott Walker <laughs> is still the governor. So <laughs> I think the other thing that you saw in Wisconsin that um, it, it will be interesting to see how it plays out now is huge Republican support for Scott That's Walker. That's a great point. Um, enormous cash infusion on his behalf. I had a donor tell me that 
think maybe he sent a hundred thousand dollars to Scott Walker in that race and and got death threats, and it did not Just determine. Just for a recall in twenty twelve. Yeah, and he he continues to host Walker at his in his home, um, and. It, it, the dynamics are a little bit different now, uh, but I think, you know, on the campaign trail, we talked a lot about the tremendous amount of enthusiasm um, that Trump had on his behalf that did not parallel um, the enthusiasm of Hillary Clinton supporters. Um, they Now it may be that they match each other, but I don't think it can be under understated or underestimated how fiercely um, some of these people back Trump, support Trump. Um, because he is an outsider. And, and you know, there's sort of, that's a spectrum of like uh, the Tea Party being like this, this like totally, you know, uncont- uncontrollable in some ways movement that Republicans were trying to harness to the, the, you know, the Wisconsin protests from Democrats were like very much controlled by the, the state party and even the national Democratic Party. Uh, and then there's sort of like the the you know in between parts of it. What Democrats really I think have to worry about they 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 need to be tapping into this energy. And the concern is maybe a different precedent, Occupy Wall Street, which had a ton of energy around it, and then just fizzled out because there wasn't the infrastructure there to harness it. And so you see uh, a competition going on right now on this sort of institutional left outside of the Democratic Party among some of these groups. And players to emerge as like the vehicle to harness either the the you know the grassroots energy or you know between say like a move on and an Emily's list and you know some of these other groups that were involved in the uh, in the uh, in the women's march and then on the donor front as well I mean David Brock uh, the former you know former right wing hitman turned Clinton enforcer held a, a big conference of his major donors in Florida over inauguration weekend and he is trying to position himself as sort of like the leading institutional um, you know let's say like uh, you know mass media or opposition research uh, uh, foil to yeah, yeah to uh, Donald Trump and there's a lot of pushback from folks who are saying no he's too associated with the old Clinton brand or he's just a, sort of an opportunist and then there are others you know including the Democracy Alliance and the CAP uh, Center for American Progress that are also positioning themselves and I think we're going to see a real fight just like we're seeing a fight at the top of the DNC for the chairmanship that's a little bit about uh, tactics and maybe a lot about vision or maybe you know on the on the big money front it'll be more about tactics and less about like ideology uh, and on the grassroots front as well I think at every level of the left right now we're seeing a battle to sort of for supremacy as well as about vision. Charlie tell us a little bit about how this this atmosphere is affecting the race to be the next chair of the Democratic National Committee which you know on the one hand it's this party figurehead position on the other hand it's it's hard to think of a contest that could be like more divorced from a you know the the a mass movement than than this uh, this vote of party apparatchiks and party insiders for you know who who's going to get the keys to the the building for the next few years. Yeah, the dynamics of the DNC chair race are pretty fascinating. At least to, to me, for a, probably a different reason, it's uh, than the characters themselves. I mean, you've got seven candidates running there. Uh, many of them are very credentialed. Uh, you know, I've met some of them, and you know, uh, we've reported a great deal about a bunch of them. And then you know. For the large, in large part, they're an impressive crew. But having said that, you know now I, I would say this is the drop that the anvil part. You know the party just suffered a soul crushing defeat that raised questions about the existence of the party and what it will look like going forward. Uh, they uh, they lost at every level. They were exposed to be hollow at the core outside of the Beltway of Washington. Yet that DNC chair fight or chair race is a pillow fight. They are playing patty cakes. They agree on everything. No one has put out a cutting edge agenda in any way. There are no new ideas. It is sort of a, yeah, me too crew. Uh, nobody, Nobody is saying anything. Everybody is afraid to talk about the fissures that grip the party and it tells you something about the brittle nature of that party right now. They are afraid to allow the Bernie Sanders Hillary Clinton split to get aired and discussed. They're afraid that's going to come out and, and burn the party up. They are afraid to talk about the other dilemma that they face, which is uh, the idea of what does the future look like? Is it is it the pursuit of the Obama coalition the way we thought it was? Or have we discovered from 2016 that 
that is something of a mirage without Barack Obama at the top of the ticket and too far away for us to bet the party's future on. So there's lots of fissures in that party. And are they really talking about it? I don't think so. Eliana, you brought up something really interesting earlier that I think speaks to this, this argument about the future of the coalition and the, I mean, Republicans, everything's in balance, right? The Democratic coalition ends up being the opposite of what the Republican coalition is, <laughs> and vice versa, just kind of by the nature of the two-party system. Yep. But even as Republican senators and Donald Trump rolled to victory in all the same states and, and lost all the same states in uh, 2016, the way they got to those wins was very different and, and potentially speaks to how these coalitions are going to sort themselves out in the future. Well, one of the interesting things I think we saw in this election was uh, a sort of inversion of the coalitions where you had blue collar, um, you know, union types coming into the Republican Party and white collar um, types who had voted Republican for decades, really, uh, going into the Democratic Party. I think Hillary Clinton was an embodiment of that. And Trump, even though he's a billionaire, um, became sort of, a, you know, union workers rallied around him in many states. You know, in Ohio, Rob Portman, who also is, you know, an, an Ivy League graduate. Uh, I think he's a University of Michigan Law School graduate, but a graduate of Dartmouth. He ha- had four unions endorse him um, over his opponent in that race, Ted Strickland, who had previously, when he ran for governor, gotten the endorsements of those unions. So, you know, that I always pointed to as sort of that. I think Ohio showed what could happen if these trends continue. And and um, there was a poll that came out that showed the stronger a voter identified as a Republican, the more anti-trade that voter was. Um, that's a huge political shift underway. And I think shows that some longtime Democratic voters, um, you know, pulled the lever for Donald Trump this election. All right. That's all for us. Thanks for coming out this week, Ken Vogel. Fun time as always. Charlie Mutessian. Thanks, Scott. Nancy Cook. Thanks for having me. And Eliana Johnson. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners. Again, please remember, send in your questions if you have one to nerdcast at politico.com. And uh, we want to be you know, answering them on air as often as possible. That's nerdcast at politico.com. Also, thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and Nerdcast researcher and Politico producer, Zach Montalaro. And one last thing before we end here. If you made it all the way to the end of this podcast, I'm guessing you probably enjoyed it. So if you wouldn't mind uh, subscribing, rating us, uh, even giving us a written review on iTunes or your favorite uh, podcast app, and sharing this episode on social media, uh, that would be great. Thank you very much. See you next week.